You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And this is Shane. And so today we are going to, well, first we're going to start off with some housekeeping, and then we have a heavy topic to unpack. It's dense, and it's full of information, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And maybe even a little controversial. Yes, it will very likely be controversial. And we are going to do our best to keep this as based in the evidence as possible. And we are going to be critical because we can be, because this is our podcast. And because honestly, I think it's in everyone's best interest to have a thorough, I guess, critique, but sort of overview of this topic. There's this whole thing where there was a mandate to present both sides of an argument. But there are a lot of times that there aren't both sides to an argument. There's really only, there's a side that has evidence and there's a side that does not. And there's no point in treating them as if they're equal. You know, it's the whole like flat earth thing. We don't need to present the idea that the earth is flat as if that was a valid argument because it's not. It's just, it's just not like the earth is a sphere more or less. Severely lacking evidence on that side of it. Exactly. So it doesn't make sense to present both sides. And this honestly is going to be a discussion that's kind of like that, that there is just not really two sides to this. There's evidence and then there's a argument without evidence. And we're going to be in favor of the side that is backed up by data and research. Yeah. I think it's important to kind of preface this entire episode by saying it's not a matter of opinion. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have opinions about it. Yeah. We're going to give our opinions. (laughs) When it comes down to, you strip away all that and it comes down to like the black and white of it, the black and white of it is, is that the side we take is going to be the side with data and the side that we don't take is going to be the side that severely lacks it. And it's all anecdotal, if that, and even then it's not great anecdotal evidence. It's opinions that are formed by information and evidence. Mm -hmm. And those I think are more valid than opinions that are formed by wishful thinking and emotional reaction exactly okay real quick before we dive into this topic a quick housekeeping item if you've been listening for the last couple of months we have been promoting a survey that we're doing just to sort of get to know our listeners a little better and if you participate in this survey and you are willing to give us your address or some mailing address we will send you a free sticker and you'll be entered into a drawing to win a free shirt and i mean what is cooler than a podcast t-shirt, especially one that says why we do what we do. Yeah, exactly. And has a cool pink and black and colorful logo that has 80s vibes to it. And anyway, (laughs) hopefully we'll be coming up with more merch this next year. But that is at the time that this is going to be published, there's going to be only a couple of weeks left to participate in that survey. We're going to officially close this round at the end of January. We will reopen this up a bit later, but we want to give the people who have participated an opportunity as well as give us a chance to really look through the data that we got from the survey. This is anonymous. We don't need to know or want to know anything personal about you. We're really just trying to figure out how to tailor this podcast to be the best that it can by understanding the people who listen to it. Exactly. We want to continue to do what we do well and maybe refine the things that we don't do well. And that's really kind of the goal of it is to make this a better experience for you all. Awesome. All right. Ready to dive into this 
Dr. Shane? <laughs> Let's do it, Dr. Abraham. All right, so <laughs> I'm going to start with a quick story, and I did pull this story from a website, so I am paraphrasing from this website, and I'm a little unclear if this is an apocryphal story that's sort of, I guess, like a fable, or if this really did happen, but either way, the link of the, a link for this is in the show notes, and you can find it there. So this is a story about two parents, Jody and Matt, and they have a son named Paul, and at two years old, he was engaging in some sort of confusing and problematic behaviors. He would scream inexplicably. He would hug them so hard that it was actually hurting them. He would just sort of crash into walls. And then he also displayed some hesitation to do anything that required like balance. But interestingly, he also loved to be pushed on the swings. And although this was a little confusing for them, they didn't necessarily think that it was out of the ordinary until they took him to preschool. So while Paul was at this preschool, the preschool director actually recommended that Paul go see an evaluator uh, who said that it's sensory processing disorder and recommended something called sensory integration therapy with an OT. Which is an occupational therapist, although we'll probably say OT throughout most of this. One of the most central questions to this entire podcast is the whole title of the podcast, Why We Do What We Do. And part of that is why children with intellectual and developmental disabilities display destructive behaviors such as self-harm, refusal to eat, and aggression toward others, and destruction of material objects, that sort of thing. And so part of this is getting after some hypotheses that have attempted to explain why children do that, and then contrast those with others. Yeah, and so what we're going to try and do today, hopefully, is provide a little bit of background on this idea of sensory integration therapy, what the controversy is around it, and what does the actual evidence say? Because I think that's the part that is to mo the most interesting to me, is the evidence part. And now in the past, we have gotten communication from occupational therapists, or OTs, that were upset with us because we expressed some sort of hesitation when we spoke about the topics that we were skeptical about. And we expressed this hesitation because we were trying to be essentially diplomatic and nice to them. And because that was not appreciated, which is to say, I'm not trying to blame the listener here, it came across that the way that we portrayed it did not land very well with them. They didn't set well with them. And so we're going to try and take a different approach. And we're not going to try and take this tentative, well, kind of, you know, what, what they may have meant this sort of thing. And instead, we're just going to say exactly what happened and exactly what we think about it in the service of trying to create, I guess, a listening experience that doesn't feel like we don't know what we're talking about because we did really dig in and do the research. This is actually for me, one of the most heavily researched topics that we have done so far, and that is actually really saying something. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, like you all can't see it, but the amount of notes that Abraham puts into these episodes is pretty extensive. So, I, I mean, he, like he spends hours putting stuff together. So, you know, when we're talking about this stuff, it's not coming from like kind of shoot from the hip, like, hey, this is our experience with it. It is. There is a ton of research. There's a team behind the, the stuff that we put out. Except for the white people do stupid things. That was kind of shoot from the hip. Yeah, that was definitely that was definitely armchairish. Yeah. But you know, but the other ones that when we spend more time on like more formal topics like this, they are heavily researched. We do spend a lot of time digging into this stuff. Yeah, it really is when it is based off of something that is communicating a dense amount of research 
and it's not just a ph philosophical idea. And even then, there's usually a lot to dig through. But this one in particular, I really combed through a number of articles, peer-reviewed articles, and and websites and resources to get a thorough understanding of the topic that we're discussing, which, as you mentioned, is sensory integration therapy. Yes. And so let's ready to go ahead and dig into the history on this. Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's hit the ground running. So our story with the history of sensory integration therapy will begin in 1920. And Anna Jean Ayers, or maybe Anna Jean Ayers, I'm saying it the best I can, was born in California on a walnut farm. I'm not sure if she was actually born on the farm, but she grew up on the farm, at least for a while. And Anna was a strong advocate for people with special needs. And so as she grew up and, and went, got her education and went to school, she got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in occupational therapy, and then later got a PhD in educational psychology. She wrote multiple books on her theories regarding why some individuals who have special needs demonstrated some of those really challenging behaviors that are often observed in individuals that have intellectual, developmental, and neurological disabilities. Yeah, and so what ended up, like through her studies, she theorized that how we process sensory information from our environment impacts our emotional regulation, our learning, and general life experience. So as we take in part of our environment, we take in our stimuli, it does influence our general experience and how we regulate our emotions, which is a, an interesting take. Yeah, I mean, it's not, there's not any major red flags in the general idea that how we interact with our environment has an impact on our, psych our psychological experience in that context. And furthermore, this did make a lot of sense sort of at the conceptual level from the viewpoint that this was really rooted in biology. So she's thinking of this sort of from a, neuro a neurological perspective and that this is there's a biological basis for these behaviors and that the presenting behavioral challenges that were seen in, in these individuals who have these special needs are just a symptom of an underlying central nervous system processing problem. And so, although there wasn't any evidence to suggest that there was an actual sensory processing problem, this was based on generally observable things. At least we do understand that we have a central nervous system and that it's critically important in how we function. And we understand that the way that we sense and experience the world around us is important in, in our psychology in those contexts. So, it kind of made sense where she was coming from here. Yeah. And I feel like it's consistent with the times too. Very much so. You know, when you talk about psychology developing at that time, it became less Freudian, a more observable, measurable things happening in the environment that we could actually observe or somewhat observe. Although I do definitely see some echoes of Freud in the sort of approach here. Yeah. 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 Well, and we'll get, we're going to, we're going to get into all that. Um, so based on the hypothesis that she came up with treating the quote behavior, unquote, would not eliminate the underlying problem, you know? So what would end up happening is the recommendation would be to treat the underlying problem. That's what she was trying to get at with this sensory integration therapy. And although I'm going to give you some metaphors that one might use, these are not metaphors that she used, but if you were to say something like in your garden, you have a plant that is sort of wilty and falling over and treating the direct problem would be like prop up the plant with a stick. But the underlying problem is the plant doesn't have enough nutrients and water in the soil, right? And so that's that might be like a metaphor here is that it's you can sort of change the surface level presentation of the behavior, but you're not changing the underlying problem, according to her, which is that idea that the sensory information is not being processed appropriately. I mean, there are a lot of things to unpack with this, but 
this immediately evoked in me this quote that I've mentioned on this podcast before, but I just, I love so much, I have to say it again, and it is, quote, the spirit of Plato dies hard. We have been unable to escape the philosophical tradition that what we can see and measure in the world is merely the superficial and imperfect representation of an underlying reality, end quote. And that's from Stephen Jay Gould in The Mismeasure of Man. And I just, I love this quote so much because it highlights the idea that often we take the observation of reality as a shadow of the underlying reality that we don't see. Yeah. And as we kind of get through some more of this, you'll kind of see where that becomes a problem, right? Right. I mean, I feel like generally that becomes a problem, but you'll see as we go through and kind of dig into this more that that perspective becomes a larger problem. Right. And really to your point, it's not that there is no merits to the hypothesis that that we've talked about that she put forward and of things like this generally. And you take the metaphor of the plant, like that's a perfect example of that hypothesis working out. But one thing I've been thinking about is there, because there are conditions like with that garden that I mentioned where you are missing nutrients in water, that there is an underlying problem and that changing just the form of what that looks like isn't going to actually fix it. But then there's also these things like Stephen Jay Gould was talking about where what we see is just a shadow of this other dimension of reality. And so I've been trying to figure out the best way to try and understand under what conditions do we say that that symptom of an alternate reality versus this is a legitimate underlying issue And the way that I'm thinking about this is there's this consideration of how many degrees removed from tangible observation does that hypothesis have to stretch, okay? And we're going to get back to that. I mean, I look at that from the perspective of like, if I'm rubbing my head a lot, that's a behavioral symptom, right? Of me maybe having a headache. Right. So that's like one degree removed from a tangible observation, if that. But we're going to talk more about how far this gets. This is more like, you know, Odysseus's journey. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) So, and you know, part of this too, part of the discussion around this, it's important to note that there have been several big pushes to make this an official diagnosis, sensory processing disorder. There have been a lot of pushes to make it an official diagnosis in the DSM so that insurance can actually be required to cover sensory integration therapy. But as of this recording, sensory processing disorder or other versions of it are not actually recognized by the psychological community as a formal diagnosis. That is going to be a critical piece of information as we go through this. Yes, remember that, that this whole idea that there's a sensory processing disorder is not formally recognized by any of the, or not at least by the American Psychological Association as being a legitimate and well-founded diagnosis. And if you come through that book, there are some, in my opinion, this is my opinion now, there are some questionable diagnoses in that book. And let's be real, if you go back to like older DSMs, where they have hysteria, like hysteria was recognized as a diagnosis and sensory processing disorder is currently not. So (laughs) there's more evidence for hysteria than there was for sensory processing disorder. So just, just kind of let that sink in for a minute. Now, part of the reason why it's not currently recognized as a disorder or diagnosis is due in part by the significant lack of empirical or conceptual evidence, lack of definition or coherent description, and a failure to identify a reason why this quote condition unquote is not better described by an existing diagnosis. So all of the things that are kind of wrapped up within sensory processing disorder can be found somewhere else in the DSM. Right now, 
despite all of that, the people who advocate for making this an official part of the DSM have made some inroads to that end by having added this idea of quote-unquote sensory difficulties that's been officially included as part of other disorders such as autism spectrum disorder. And so they're sort of slowly inching in sensory difficulties as part of other disorders. And I don't know whether or not that will work as a wedge to eventually extract sensory processing disorder as its own diagnosis and sub-subsequent iteration of the DSM, or whether that will actually dilute it so much that they'll again look at this and say, well, this is better accounted for by this other thing, so there's no need to put it in as a separate entity. But nevertheless, I think that that has allowed them to operate somewhat more freely by securing funding probably from some streams that they weren't able to before. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a toe in the water, right? Right. Now we kind of talked about history and kind of where we're at with this as far as like the culture around it, but I think it's important to talk about how this works. So let's go ahead and dig into what all of this even means. Cool. All right. Well, one thing is that this sensory integration therapy and the procedures described therein, which we're about to go over, is frequently used by occupational therapists. But I do want to point out that Occupational therapists are not under fire here. We're not criticizing people who practice occupational therapy. What we do want to do is very carefully unpack this idea of the sensory integration therapy. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with plenty of OTs that are fantastic practitioners and do really great work. So it's important to recognize, again, the profession itself is not under fire. It's this particular therapy. Right. So children with special needs or without sometimes who engage in challenging behaviors, including stereotypy, which is a lot of like rigorous and rigid repetitive behavior or more severe problem behaviors such as self-injury or self-harm, aggression, destruction to inanimate objects or refusal to comply with caregivers or refusal to consume sufficient calories to survive are all targeted for intervention by sensory integration therapy. So what will happen is they'll engage in one of these things that we just listed, and then they'll use sensory integration therapy as a means to treat the, quote, underlying issue and not the behavioral symptoms themselves. And essentially, the hypothesis here is that these children are either too sensitive to stimulation to their senses, which is to say that they are easily overwhelmed by some amount of sensory stimulation, either in the form of you know, visual, auditory, smell, tactile, whatever. Or they're not sensitive enough in that they are sort of seeking out sensation is another, the other side of this hypothesis. So basically, no matter what their problem behavior is, it is because they're either too stimulated or they're not stimulated enough. Or I saw a third one called that they are sensory defensive. And I wasn't sure what that meant, so I had to look it up. And the description that I got is that And I think this is a direct quote. So I'm going to say, quote here, a negative reaction to one or more types of sensations such as touch, movement, sound, taste, texture, or smell, often requiring you to control his or her daily routine to avoid such things. That to me does not sound fundamentally different from the other things that we described in in terms of being overly or either hyper or hyposensitive to stimulation. But that was the category that I saw. Yeah. And I think to kind of help distinguish this a little bit, there are sensations that people just dislike. Sure. Don't get me wrong. I, I hate the way fleece feels. Fleece feels awful. Wow, I didn't know that. A very uncomfortable feeling for me. However, I've never punched a hole in the drywall <laughs> as a result. I hate the way pleather looks, but I have not beat somebody up over it, right? So I think that's important to kind of recognize is like, you know, there are sensations that people dislike. 
And that's okay. You're allowed to have those things. But what this is saying is that those types of feelings result in larger problem behaviors like banging my head on a wall. And that's kind of what we're trying to figure out and kind of parse out here. Right. And so hypothetically, this works. The sensory integration therapy works by making repeated contact with specific sensory events and that doing so will result in the individual who is receiving this therapy. It will result in their brain adapting or, as they like to say, rewiring so that they will respond to sensory information in a more efficient and effective way. And I pulled that almost verbatim from one of the sensory integration therapy websites. Yeah, so you kind of see where they're going with this. And now what will happen is you'll see that there are a few different names related to this that you'll see, but the two big categories that appear to be in relation to challenging behavior, specifically when we're talking about being addressed with sensory integration therapy or SIT, is going to be feeding issues and those are larger behavioral issues. Those the ones we talked about aggression, self-injurious behavior and whatnot. But feeding issues are addressed a lot with something called sensory diets. Yes, and we'll get into kind of what that means because it's a bit of a confusing name, although they do go out of their way to try and clarify that. Now, for sensory integration therapy, again, the idea here is to expose the individual to a carefully structured regime of contact with certain activities that are specifically designed to target these individual sensory inputs in a particular way. Yeah, and so you'll see some general categories here that include things like oromotor, exposures, vestibular, deep pressure, proprioceptive feedback. There's a lot of different things that could be included in these categories. Yeah. So some examples of that include things like brushing, which many of you maybe have heard. If anyone saw the movie Tully, the mom in this was specifically coached to brush her child. And it sort of looks very similar to a brush you might use to brush a horse. So it's this sort of large flat brush that's got very densely packed bristles on it. It's not even for the hair. It's actually for your skin. The idea is that you brush it over their arms, their palms, their legs, their feet, just kind of all over their body. And that is just creating a specific sensory input for them. Yeah. You also see deep massage. I've seen this a lot where uh, like really like intense hugs or uh, really deep pressure types of things. I've seen different tools, people using different tools to do this as well. Yeah. And we talked about this. Well, a similar one to the deep, the deep massage is this idea of compression. And this is used with things like compression sleeves that they'll often put on the elbows and knees, a tight elastic that sort of squeezes the joints. Now, a compression sleeve was great when I had a knee injury. Right. It held my knee together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, some of these are based off of actual medical technology that is used for real medical problems. Yeah, exactly. Weighted vest is another one that comes up a lot. And I'll spare you our diatribe on this one. Just there's a whole episode on this. Yeah. Go back and listen to our episode on weighted vests. That was a really good one. Yeah, for sure. Spinning around on a rotating device, such as a scooter. Yep. That's something that comes up. I actually saw this one once, which is playing in a ball pit. They'll just put the kids in a ball pit and have them play around. Yeah. Swinging is another one. I see this a lot. I'll see this in different environments. Commonly, one is jumping on a trampoline. They're usually small little trampolines meant for like an individual person. You might see them also in like a physical therapy office, but those little individual trampolines. Yeah. And you'll see walking like an animal. I personally have not seen this one. I've seen this in like imaginative play, but I have not seen this as part of sensory integration therapy. Like things like crab walking. Yeah. I actually saw a whole list of animals that they might use and I didn't really understand the point of that. But yes, the walking like an animal was one. And then the last one that I have here is just sitting on a beanbag or sitting in a tent. Now, this is the last one for the examples that I gave. There are actually many, many, many more beyond the list that we just gave you. 
Oh yeah, I mean, we just we're trying to kind of give an idea of what is like what the tools of the trade are. So if somebody is saying that they are like a sensory integration therapist, I don't know if anybody ever touts themselves as that type of person. Yeah, I don't know. But these are different tools in their toolbox. Like these would be things that you would find in their toolbox that they would kind of pull out and be like, "Hey, this is going to work. Let's try this. Let's walk like a giraffe." <laughs> you know, something like that. I don't know what a giraffe walks like. <laughs> I'm curious. It's like they have very good posture. Oh, okay. So it's just like back straight, maybe trying to have all fours on the ground. Stretch your neck out, I guess. Yeah, extend your neck as much as possible. That sounds painful. <laughs> yeah, it's a very uncomfortable, but maybe somebody needs that. I don't know. All right. So, Dr. Shane, what are we talking about here with this idea of a sensory diet? Oh, sensory diets. I hear this a lot. I feel like I've heard this more in the last couple of years when we talk about any sort of sensory input and stuff, and it's not actually based on food, but around feeding issues. So when we start talking about this, you're gonna hear us talking about feeding issues and behavioral challenges related to food, but it's not actually based on food, which is kind of a, I, you, I guess you could call sensory diet kind of a misnomer, right? I mean, I don't want to speak for the people who created that title and feel and felt like that was an appropriate title for what they were up to, but it's a little bit misleading in that it doesn't, mean you are eating specific foods meant to address sensory input or sensory processing disorder. It's just the way that you go about implementing feeding of those foods that sensory diet is in reference to, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what you'll see is a group of activities that are specifically scheduled into a child's day to assist with attention, arousal, adaptive responses, things of that nature. And the activities are chosen for that child's needs based on their sensory integration theory or on sensory integration theory, I should say. So essentially what it is, is they're saying that there's some kind of issue with input. So they're going to create this activity schedule that includes activities that meet those sensory needs throughout the day. Right. And so a sensory diet is made up of a group of activities specific to the child's needs with respect to their sensory processing issues. So it does depend on whatever those issues happen to be and is not necessarily a generic. Well, it kind of is a generic, <laughs> way of talking about it. but I mean, they'll modify it for, for each child, at least that they say that they will. So let's say your child is what an occupational therapist calls low arousal, meaning that they're sort of sluggish. Their routine might include things like 20 jumping jacks, bouncing on a therapy ball 20 times, or holding a Zen bug yoga pose for 10 seconds. Not entirely sure what that is, but that's an example of that. I was going to say, I do yoga and I've never heard of a Zen bug yoga pose. We must be missing out. There's, yeah, there's something there. Maybe I, I'm just not Savasana enough. <laughs> so that brings us to this, this conversation, some of the controversy around this idea of sequential oral sensory approaches by Toomey in 2007. So you'll see this abbreviated as SOS sometimes. Yeah, there, there are a few different sensory integration therapy approaches to feeding and the sensory diet, but we're going to dig really into this, this SOS one first. And one of the two most important components of the SOS approach are systematic desensitization to the food, and there's a, a heavy emphasis on play and just playing with the kid, playing with the food, and creating a play environment what that'll include is like tolerating it, interacting with it. So you'll see kids playing with the food, touching it, smelling it, tasting it, bringing it to their lips and then actually eating the food. So there's a lot of different things that are built into this SOS treatment. Yeah. The SOS one that we're talking about from Toomey actually includes 25 steps that are arranged along that spectrum that you just described from tolerating to eating. And at any point during those steps, if it appears to be the case that the child is the stress level is getting to be too high, 
then the recommendation is to fade to an earlier step in the process. That component is systematic desensitization right then and there. Like that is like a pretty common way to do desensitization. Right. Yeah. So like a lot of these things, it is loosely related to and or based in like science. Something else. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's everything is pulled from something else and kind of Frankenstein into this thing. (laughs) There you go. Another common feature of the sensory diet is that some of these activities are structured or that these activities are really structured within the day, but it's child directed in that the implementing employee will follow the child's movements toward and away from certain activities. So it's structured, but not. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's a plan in place for what they'd like to have happen, but they kind of just take whatever the child's, they follow the child's lead, whatever that might be. And so if a child just moves away from a particular food they don't want to eat, they're like, that's cool. We'll just play with something else over here. Whatevs. And so there's just, there's no amount of correction or prevention or blocking away from avoiding the foods that they continue to avoid. And finally, this approach is always done continuously irrespective of the kinds of behaviors that the child engages in. What, and what I mean by that specifically is, for example, a child might be having sort of a, a meltdown tantrum because of the food that they're having an issue with. And the sensory worker is just going to continue to provide a lot of affectionate attention. It's going to be highly individualized, special one-on-one attention, and often includes several toys to try and calm them down. So I just want to make sure we're clear on the steps here are that you present a food that this child needs to eat so that they don't starve to death the child has a meltdown and so you give them you let them go away from the food and give them tons of love attention and toys and so just think about what the child may have learned throughout that interaction yeah and you know this is not to say that you've got a kid that eats a pretty well-rounded diet and you want them to eat brussels sprouts and so you're trying to get them to eat brussels sprouts specifically this is the kid that you'll work with that eats a a honey thick textured a pureed egg and french fries and that's all they eat that is a very good point yes i'm glad that you mentioned that yeah yeah this is not just like let's get my kid to eat more vegetables this these are often if not usually children who are at the point of actually suffering from nutritional deficiencies yeah and they're at risk for having a feeding tube put in and otherwise are maybe even demonstrating failure to thrive because of a lack of adequate nutrition yes and if you've ever been around a child or worked with somebody who has a G-tube, it is not a fun situation to be in. I've worked with individuals who have had G-tubes and I've worked with individuals who have pulled out their G-tubes. Yeesh. So not great. Yeah. If you're not familiar with what a G-tube is, it's a tube that goes through the wall of your stomach and into your stomach, goes through your, your abdominal cavity. So there's a tube that's sticking out of your stomach that you are fed through. Yeah. It's because if you can't get food into the individual in any other way and, and to ensure that they do not die of starvation, you will literally just put it straight into their stomach mm-hmm. through the outside of their stomach. Yes, it's it is incredibly invasive. Yes, this is not you really want that to be your absolute last ditch effort and preferably not because there was some behavioral problem, but because there was a medical reason to have to do it. Yes, this person will eventually die of malnutrition if you don't do this. OK, so let's. For the sake of time, go ahead and dive into some of the research on the use of these things. And I want to start with the sensory diet, okay? Even though I want to try and be as efficient as possible at this, we're going to describe every peer-reviewed research article that we could find to represent the position of the SOS diet, or even just a sensory integration diet, as thoroughly as possible, okay? And so I'm going to list them off really quick. The first one is Benson, Park, Gannon, and uh, Munoz. 2013 and this is in the journal of occupational therapy schools and early intervention and that's it 
End of list. <laughs> that's it. That's that's all of them that we were able to find. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the most like academically sarcastic thing I think we've ever done. <laughs> yeah. I just I wanted to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. But that's going to speak to specifically we talked about providing the research to show both sides and we talked about showing the evidence. This is the only thing that shows anything in relation to supporting the position of this topic. Yeah. Comparatively, when we go into the evidence side, you're going to see that there is quite a bit more to say the opposite. Take it away, Shane. Let's get this thing. Let's get this our flagship study started. Ah. Uh, so in this study, they reviewed the records of 34 children who had been fully documented completing the SOS program as described by Toomey 2007. The only modification that they had was that some of the children did not complete the recommended entire 12 weeks. I wonder if the authors of the study got a strongly worded letter from Toomey's lawyer. Hmm. That'll be relevant in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will. Anyway, of the 34 children that they were able to pull records from, six of them, which is 18%, showed advancement in the hierarchy toward all foods. So of all the foods that they tried to introduce, and there was like six or seven of them, I think, six of them did show some improvement in their advancement toward those foods. Five of them, which is 15%, showed advancement toward some, but not all of the foods. And the rest of the 34 children, which is, what does it come out to? So we had 11, so... About 33%? Yeah, there you go. 33%. Great. So basically the rest of them showed no advancement or at least no sustained advancement toward any of the foods. And even some of them got a little bit worse. So of those that showed some advancement, the greatest proportion of the population was the group of children that had what they described in the demographics of that study as a neurological impairment. Specifically, that is, nine of the 13 children that had a neurological impairment showed some or a complete advancement toward some or all the foods. What you'll see here is that the authors concluded that it was an effective intervention with children with a neurological impairment. So they noted that this was less effective for individuals with autism in their analysis, concluding that, quote, not surprisingly, the data indicated that the response to the intervention from the children with autism fluctuated from session to session and within food groups. The fluctuations are consistent with fluctuations observed daily within this population, increasing the challenges of intervention. Therapists should be aware that when using the SOS approach, some children with autism will respond while others may not. End quote. So that will be important, but it's also, I don't know, I kind of read this as it sounding funny to me of like, well, this didn't work, but we didn't. It shouldn't have worked because children with autism are so fickle that you can't get systematic behavior out of them. Yeah. And I think the other part, too, is at the end of the day, if I'm going to a doctor and I'm receiving a medical treatment, then a 33% chance of effectiveness is probably not super awesome. Yeah. So the vast majority of children in this did not actually improve their consumption or their even approach of the foods that they were trying to introduce them to. The authors also stated that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but they stated that those who already showed independent eating were more likely to eat foods and textures, especially of those foods similar to the ones that they were already eating. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, (laughs) that's saying like they can do it. They just needed a little bit of motivation. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like they continued to do the thing they were already doing. So, We didn't make them worse. Good job. Yeah, right. Yeah, cool. <laughs> like, yeah, we kept them perfectly neutral. So I guess let's try and give them the benefit of the doubt here and say that maybe these were children who were not having any necessarily behavior problems around those foods. 
And so they were able to get more traction with foods that were similar to ones they were already eating. I anyway, we can move on from that. I just yeah. I had to pull that quote because I was reading this. I read this a few times at the in their conclusion, the article, and I'm saying like, so you're saying that they ate foods they already ate. Hold on, let me read this again. <laughs> yeah, just to make sure I understand. So that's like saying like I've I've grown up eating pizza. You're gonna expose me to flatbread. I'm probably gonna eat it. Yeah, like this is like pizza, and you're like, cool, I'll try it. Yeah, it's close enough. That's that's pretty much what that is. That's a statement saying like it was close enough. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, I'm very excited. Now we get to dig into quite a few other studies that we found that were looking at this sensory integration approach. And one that I'd really like to dig into in depth, and this is by Peterson, Piazza, and Volkert in 2016. This was published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. And these authors evaluated the use of a modified sequential oral sensory approach and also a traditional applied behavior analysis approach with three individuals with autism spectrum disorders. Oh, before we get into this article, I just want to say how much I love this article and the approach they decided to go with. It is so punk rock. (laughs) It's really awesome. It's so good. And actually the reason that I chose to elaborate specifically on this study versus the others, we're going to summarize a bit more is because this study was so well designed and so well written and just it's such a good study that I, I really felt like it warranted a more thorough treatment. Yes. So in this study, the first author actually went in and attended and got certified in a workshop for SOS and developed a protocol from this. So they, so the person that's studying this went and got trained to do exactly what this SOS approach is supposed to look like. So they designed an intervention around this. They modified some of the procedures to make them a closer comparison to the other group, though, when we talk about working with the other part of the design, the other intervention. Right, to get that good experimental control going on. And furthermore, to evaluate their procedures, they sent a treatment implementation fidelity checklist. So they based off of their training and the protocol that was developed, they wrote a fidelity checklist for the procedures so that they could review that checklist when looking at those sessions and say, yes, we did exactly what we were supposed to do. And what they did is they sent that checklist to an independent, unaffiliated occupational therapist who was trained in and had been practicing SOS for feeding for five years. And they sent her a video of some SOS sessions for her to score with that checklist. And they got back from her a rating of the checklist as being 100% accurate for running an SOS intervention, and also scored the video as having 100% integrity according to the checklist that she had just approved. So they did really do their due diligence here in ensuring that they were following the recommended protocol very closely. Yeah. Okay. And it just gets better from here. So the modifications that we found in the article were, they basically, they changed the length of the session. Instead of using the 15 and 20 minute recommended sessions, they used 10 minute sessions. They changed the goals of the study to increase acceptance and consumption of the food and the length of participation in the SOS protocol. So those are the three modifications that we found in the study. Now, interestingly, this did get back to the author, Toomey, and Toomey was upset. And so her lawyer got in touch with the authors of the study and demanded that they not call their procedures the sequential oral sensory approach because it was, quote, 
not the true and comprehensive SOS method, end quote, and that they used the SOS, quote, in a manner that was not consistent with the SOS method, using metrics that were not relevant and were artificial to the SOS methodology, end quote. And that comes from the lawyer of Toomey when they reviewed sort of their criticism, I guess, or the, the general approach that they were taking. So essentially they got a cease and desist. Not necessarily. They could not tell them not to publish it. They just were saying, like, you can't call this our protocol because it's not our, you're violating the spirit of our protocol because it's got to be 15 to 20 minutes or like you, you will never see an effect. I'm kidding. I'm just saying that, like, (laughs) that seems like a minor variable to have changed. And the fact that they were actually measuring acceptance and consumption of the food, which seems like an important variable to be measuring, that's the outcome. Right. Whereas with the SOS protocol, based on what I read from the lawyer's notes in that study, they were really interested in advancing through the hierarchy of moving toward food and not an outcome of acceptance and uh, reduction in problem behavior. And then their length of participation in the SOS protocol, which I'm going to actually get to right now. Yeah. So specifically with respect to the time spent in the SOS protocol. The children in the study spent 1,020, 1,292, and 1,020 minutes, respectively, for the three of them. So one was, two of them spent 1,020 minutes in the SOS protocol, and the third one spent 1,292 minutes in that protocol. And in that condition, they never made any improvement toward accepting foods. Okay? Yeah. And to that end... The lawyer wrote, it may be unrealistic to expect that the children, oh, so I'm quoting right here, quote, it may be unrealistic to expect that children with moderate to severe autism would achieve the goals of SOS and the number of sessions conducted in the current study, end quote. However, if they spent that much time with those individuals using the SOS method, they were able to achieve 80% acceptance of the first food for participants using the traditional applied behavior analysis approach in 16 minutes, 54 minutes, and 249 minutes, respectively, for these (laughs) individuals. So it was either over a thousand minutes with no improvement whatsoever, or 250 minutes with acceptance toward the first food that they were trying to get them to try. And that was the slowest progression. Yes, that was the slowest one. The fastest one being 16 minutes. 16 minutes. I mean, like, just all, if you're talking about effectiveness, if you're talking about going to receive a procedure, receive therapy, and you want it to work, and work well, uh, I'm going to go with 16 minutes. I don't want to spend a thousand minutes with somebody. 16 minutes is cool, especially if I'm getting the better outcome. And I mean, I tried to read through this fairly carefully to ensure that I didn't miss anything because I really wanted to say what were the variations because they end up having to call this a modified sequential oral sensory approach. But essentially the implication of what I'm seeing here that they were critical of is the fact that they reduced session length by five to 10 minutes. And that they were measuring not necessarily progression along the acceptance hierarchy as outlined. And that they didn't do it for the full 12 weeks that were recommended. Well, let's just say that those were the most critical cream of the crop variables that needed to be in place for SOS to work. They were able to get a better result using their methods with 80% less time, approximately. Yeah. And so (laughs) even if the SOS protocol would have eventually worked, theirs was much, much more efficient. And we're going to get to this in a moment, but we're talking about children who are oftentimes severely in need of adequate nutrition. 
and that you don't have 800 minutes to spare to see if something will eventually maybe result in a single bite of one piece of food. Yeah, it's just the, the time is of the essence. You don't have time to waste. Yes, exactly. So that brings us to Addison et al. 2012 in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis also showed that sensory integration not only failed to increase acceptance of food, but resulted in increased rates of problem behavior. So not only did it not work, but it made things worse. Yep. I believe that's called uh, iatrogenic effects. Yeah. However, continuous presentation and non-contingent reinforcement or stimulus delivery, increased food acceptance and decreased problem behavior. So they found that the sensory integration actually made things way worse and that just simple continuous presentation and reinforcement made it a little bit better. Right. Now, with respect to just sensory integration therapy, because that was all the feeding stuff that we were just talking about, again, there are precious few peer-reviewed articles that we could find that supported the idea of using sensory integration therapy, but I'll review a few that we were able to find that we're looking at sensory integration therapy, especially compared to other interventions. There was Leiden, Healy, and Gray in 2017. They compared sensory integration therapy and what they generically called a behavioral intervention for children with problem behavior and found that the behavioral intervention was successful at reducing problem behavior in all four of the children that participated Sensory integration therapy resulted in decreased problem behavior in one of them, but more importantly, sensory integration therapy actually increased the magnitude and rate of the destructive behavior for some of the other participants. Now, I couldn't get into the deep details of this because I couldn't get through the paywall, but that was the gist of it that I was able to see. Oh, capitalism and your paywalls. Oh, (laughs) it's like journals being run by EA Sports video games. Yeah, right. There's so many paywalls. It's not fair. All right. So more at all in 2015 in the behavior interventions journal evaluated five individuals with autism who engage in stereotypy. So neither the sensory diet alone, brushing and deep pressure alone, or both treatments combined were effective interventions for stereotypy. None of those things actually effectively decrease stereotypy at all. And so essentially, these results do not actually support the use of sensory integration as a treatment for stereotypy. They say nothing about the effectiveness of sensory integration. And I don't know, I don't recall if we mentioned this earlier, but this one's especially important because one of the major hypotheses and one of the major implementations or instances in which you might see someone recommend the use of sensory integration therapy is when you see individuals who engage in these really intense stereotypic behavior patterns. And what that often means is that there are repetitive, non-functional behaviors that get in the way that are often so high magnitude and rate that they prevent the individual from doing other functional activities like participating in academic learning or just being in an environment that doesn't cause them to be restricted from other children. And so stereotypy is what this is often referred to is something that is often targeted for intervention because it can be so inhibiting. And the hypothesis put forward by the sensory integration approach is that this is a sensory processing disorder, and therefore, this is commonly targeted for treatment by sensory integration therapy, because the hypothesis is that, well, if we just give them the appropriate sensory stimulation, then they won't engage in stereotypy. And this study showed that, at least for their participants, was absolutely not the case. And for many of the other studies that I I only listed a few here, but there were plenty that reviewed specifically stereotypy with sensor integration therapy and showed no effect. So that's why I think this one's important to bring up. I feel like all of these studies are just a bunch of mic drops, right? <laughs> yeah. So this comes across like, oh, you said this works. It doesn't work. You said this works. It doesn't really work. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. That's the, that's the trend we're seeing on this evidence side. 
Or even you said this works and it made things worse. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then this last one that I'm listing here was by McGinnis and colleagues in 2012, also published in Behavioral Interventions. And what they found was that sensory integration activities that could function as this idea of a positive reinforcer, which is to say they could use the sensory integration activities to specifically reinforce more appropriate behaviors if they use them contingently and they tried to direct those behaviors in a therapeutic direction. However, there was also pointed out that the sensory integration techniques are often used when the problem behavior occurs, as we mentioned earlier. And what often happens is that that sensory integration therapy approach will reinforce and even then increase those destructive behaviors. And remember when we go back to that example we provided before, and this is with respect to the food, where the food was presented, the child basically threw a tantrum. And then that means that they got that food that they didn't want there. They didn't want to be there. They got to go away. And not only that, they got tons of loving attention from the caregiver there of like, oh, you throw a tantrum, you're going to get all my love and affection. And here's all these toys on top of it. And so what the kid learns then is like, when I have something I don't like, specifically this food, then if I throw a tantrum, my world gets real good. It gets just sweet as honey. Yeah. And that's exactly sort of what's being described here is that, and with respect to things other than food, I mean, let's just go to stereotypy, for example. If you have an individual who, like, they probably, I think there's a lot of research to suggest that most of the time when these individuals are engaging in these stereotyped behavior patterns, it's just kind of fun for them to do, which is to say that there isn't any external reinforcement that's being provided. It's just, it feels cool or it looks cool or it, whatever it is, it's just fun for them to do. However, if you were to then, make other feel-good things happen as a result of them engaging in those stereotyped behavior patterns, then those will even increase even further beyond the rate that they were already at. Or let's take some other thing like an individual who is banging their head against a wall. And again, it's like there are procedures to evaluate and provide effective therapeutic treatment for this. But if the kid learns when I bang my head against the wall, I get tons of high-value attention and toys and sometimes even preferred snacks, although I don't know that's necessarily part of it, then you're likely to see just an increase of that behavior again. So I think that's one of the main points being made here. And there are just many, 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 many more studies that I didn't get to list here. But that's just, I think, a major consideration around understanding what's being suggested here. Yeah, I mean, we we do dig into that a little bit too on that Weighted Vest episode because this is kind of the same piece where it's like these activities that are cool or these things that are cool are made contingent on this problem behavior. Like the Weighted Vest is a cool reinforcer for some kids, right? So I'll engage in problem behavior and now I get somebody hugging me. Now I get all this attention in the world and now I've got this cool weighted vest. So it just, it's one of those things where it's all about timing. And that's just one indicator that like, you know, it's, it's actually, there's more of a behavioral mechanism than there is like a processing issue most of the time. Right. And that's exactly it is. I think there's something very specific to be understood about the foundational hypothesis here. And I think that actually is a really good segue to our conclusion. Yeah, I agree. My first point here is that the idea of sensory integration uh, or sensory processing disorder and sensory integration therapy is really based on speculation. There's just not evidence to suggest that the reason that they engage in those problem behaviors is the reason that's put forth by this approach. And therefore, the interventions are just based essentially on that speculation and wishful thinking and, I guess, really cherry-picked observations in terms of whether or not it works when you might see, and I think this is a point we didn't hit on here, but I think it's really important to come back to. If you see problem behavior 
and you provide a ton of attention toys and big reinforcers when that problem behavior occurs, you are going to see an immediate reduction in that problem behavior in the moment. Yeah. What's going to happen is that the next time that context arises, that problem behavior is going to go right back up again and through the roof. If you try and wait them out or change it or try anything else, it's going to escalate even further. And then again, in the moment, you provide all of those supplemental stimuli and reinforcers and attention and everything, you're going to get a temporary suppression because you have given them something else to do. But what you have taught them is this is how you get those things is escalate to the point at which the problem is something I can't ignore. And now you get my love, attention, toys and food and whatever else you want in the world. And that is a dangerous game to play. All you have to do is look up any research on post reinforcement pause. Just all you got to do is look up that that's because that's exactly the phenomenon you're talking about is I get my reinforcer. I just ate lunch, so I'm not going to engage in behavior to get more food. Exactly. Right. That is post reinforcement pause. The same thing happens with love and affection and attention and touch and all these other things. Right. All right. So another part of the conclusion here that we want to cover is that there isn't really any well-controlled or peer-reviewed research that supports sensory integration therapy as an intervention. There's nothing out there that says, yes, this is the thing, this is the thing that works definitively, and this works better than this other thing. There's just nothing out there that shows that it's there. And what that means is that, at best, for many of these children who have special needs, sensory integration therapy is a waste of time. And as we mentioned before, this is time during critical windows of potential for therapeutic benefit by using effective interventions that like we often just do not have time to waste on these things. And so it can't be spent doing something that is unlikely to work. To me, it's, I can liken it to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had a treatable form of cancer that did not have a lot of time to treat and chose to use something that was a waste of time and died as a result when he could have had something that was effective and done way sooner in his, in his process. Yeah. It's it's very unfortunate that and that, that's a really good example of, of things like this happening. And it is unfortunate when things like that happen, where it's like, this was totally preventable. It was totally preventable and didn't have to go this way. Yeah. And so kind of continuing with our conclusion, moreover, there are studies that show that SIT or sensory integration therapy can and does exacerbate some of those challenged behaviors. Only increasing the amount of time it will take for effective therapies to not only treat the imminent problem, but reverse the damage done. So I mentioned iatrogenic effects before, and essentially what that is, is things get worse as a result of a medical procedure or get worse as a result of a procedure or testing. And that's kind of what happens here. Things get worse as a result of this therapy that's supposed to be helpful. And now we have to not only go in and help treat this problem that they are originally referred for now we have to go back and backstep and say okay now this problem is made worse now i have to treat this problem that didn't exist before as well as the problem you were referred for exactly and i think one of the most important points well i don't know i think we've hit on a lot of very important points but one here i think that's critical in understanding this because i'm expecting plenty of pushback from people who maybe do this kind of work or like really feel like it makes a lot of sense to them The entire foundation of the philosophy of sensory integration therapy and sensory processing disorder rests on an antiquated and demonstrably false understanding of behavior and the processes by which behavior exists. This approach is remarkably similar to what we described when we talked about homeopathy. This is similar to what people do with prayer healing. And I mean, you just, you pick any number of those pseudoscientific interventions that lack any evidence that are potentially harmful and are almost certainly a waste of time. 
And that looks very, very similar to what we're seeing here is you have strong proponents who are willing to defend it and they will come at you with a, a mass of anecdotal evidence and no actual research or data to back it up. And this is based like I've been to these centers and I think I described it in the weighted vest episode where you go on and it looks like a weird combination of like bondage and playground in this place where it's often sort of slightly dimmed lighting because we don't want to overstimulate them. And they've got these giant foam pits and these really big swing slides, those enormous, they're not foam, but they're like blocks that are sort of made that the sort of canvas material and they're stuffed with uh, something that's soft, but it's also really firm. So you can, it's almost yeah. like a giant Lego you can build these forts out of. I mean, they do look like fun places, but the point here of like they're engaging in problem behavior because their senses are under or overwhelmed. That's not based on anything. That doesn't make any sense. And specifically throwing them in a ball pit, that's that doesn't make any sense. Like this, there's no reason to believe that that's going to do anything to address that problem behavior unless their problem behavior is specifically like, I will stop doing this if you throw me in a ball pit. But even then, like you're just negotiating then at the the point at which it's like, you know, the kid controls the situation. Do what I say or else. Yeah. And I mean, this is just based on nothing that contains evidence and the philosophy that's not backed up by anything. And like I said, originally the idea here that this is related to like a central nervous system processing issue, like these are all tangentially rooted to science. And the point that we made earlier that we were talking about how it's sort of how many degrees removed are you from the observed event for all of those things where you have an underlying problem and a symptom that is a legitimate phenomenon. When you move back that one step, you can still observe it. If I look, when I take the example of the garden and the plant that's dying, and like you take the surface level approach of propping it up, well, the underlying problem here is lack of water nutrients. I just move to the, the water nutrients part, and I can observe that that's a problem, and I can deal with it there. With these other things, where it's like, well, they're not processing their sensory information adequately, where do I go to look for that? There is nowhere to go. Anything I do is going to be artifact of the measurement that I'm doing because I'm looking for something specific and I'm only going to choose the thing that I think that I see when I see when I'm looking. And probably I'm not going to see anything at all if I'm really doing good scientific approach because this isn't based on anything. This is just a hypothesis that went way out of control and its own like own trajectory on its path. So I do want to say like I'm not trying to call out any one person, maybe to me. But <laughs> I'm not trying to put occupational therapy under fire here. I'm not even trying to put people who work in sensory integration therapy under fire here. I'm really just trying to take this approach and say, you guys, you, you've had a lot, of, a lot of time to work on this at this point. And we've like, there's no philosophical or conceptual reason to believe that this would work. And the evidence is completely lacking. It's time to change direction and do something that works. And like these things can be used as reinforcers and used in a therapeutic context, but we just can't recommend this blanket approach of, we'll just, you know, tie him up in a swing or we'll just put on this weighted vest or whatever it is we're going to do. And do jumping jacks. Yeah, just do jumping. Just what's well, crab walk across the room. That doesn't do anything because it's not based on anything. There's no reason to think that that would have any effect. So just, I mean, I think my recommendation generally think skeptically about these things. Look at the data, use your evidence, make decisions. And like, we are all in the business here of just trying to help these kids. So like, let's get on the same team and use science to our advantage. Yeah. The entire purpose of science, one of the goals of science is to benefit humanity. Yeah. Right. 
If that's our goal as scientists, is to benefit humanity, then we need to be able to take a moment to recognize that some things do not benefit humanity. And this is one of those things that simply does not benefit humanity. There is no evidence to say that it does. And that's kind of our entire, after this hour of listening to us, that's the, that's the point we're making is there are other more effective treatments that benefit these kids that desperately need the time and treatment to help them and help them thrive in our society. Right. And I think that our motivations are the same across these different fields. And so, as you said, like that's, that's the goal of science. So let's just all get on the same page because this isn't working. And it's, we just have to change direction. So, yep, I agree. Okay, cool. Let's transition real quick to some quick recommendations and then we'll get out of here because this has been a long one. Recommendations. Okay, so I'll go first. The recommendation I have today is fairly obvious, but it is because of this conversation I just had to say it. That article that we described by Peterson and colleagues in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis on the Modified Sequential Oral Sensory Approach is really, really, really good. It's Like I said, it is one of the most cleverly designed, well-written, thoroughly researched studies that you will find, especially on this issue, and I couldn't recommend it enough. And so if you can find it, there are lots of places where this is available, or you can maybe ask someone, you can maybe even email the authors and get access to it. But that's my recommendation for today. I love it too. That's such a good one. Oh, all right. So my recommendation is a band. The other night I got to go to a show. It's been a long time since I've been to a, like a punk show, like a local punk show. So they're starting to do them in town again, which is awesome. Cool. I want to recommend this band that played the other night. This band is called Virginity. They have a full length called With Time. My buddy Casey is the singer, main songwriter and all that. And Jim is a drummer and he's a really great dude. So this band is a three piece. They are a punk band out of Daytona. You can find their music on virginityisrad.bandcamp.com. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely check it out. It's this nice raw kind of 10 song full length and, and just a lot of fun to listen to. Take some time to listen to it. Just have fun with it. And that's what I've been kind of spinning this last couple, the last couple days. I honestly think like, even if your bag is not punk necessarily, there's always a time where you just want to hear some loud, cringy, n- like fast, nonsensical, yelly punk. And it's just like, even if it's rare, you you, you want to have that in your back pocket so you can pull it out when you want to have it. And and it's just a lot of fun. So I haven't listened to them, but I'll give them a shot. So that's a good recommendation. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. So and and good dudes too. So they're they're starting to blow up. So try to see them before they start playing like House of Blues. Yeah. They're gonna be head, headlining in a <laughs> Billie Eilish tour or something. <laughs> yeah. Billie Eilish is gonna be their opener. Exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> All right, sweet. Well, this has been a super long conversation. Thank you so much. If you stuck with us, we appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and close this one out for now. Do you have anything else you want to finish with, Shane? Just say, keep doing good work and do good in the world. Even if you're doing sensory integration therapy, we love you and we want to be on the same team. So cool. Thank you so much for listening. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes 
by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.